When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey YA is sponsored by Book Riot's Read Harder 2021 Challenge. Book Riot's annual challenge is back. Once again, Read Harder 2021 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will hopefully help you discover new amazing books you would not have otherwise picked up. Read a romance by a trans or non-binary author, nonfiction about anti-racism, middle grade mysteries, and more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizing for those who complete the challenge. That's bookriot.com slash readharder. Welcome to Hey YA, from great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, alongside Sarah Hannah Gomez, and we are recording on Friday, December 4th, 2020. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Oh, you know, it's that time of year, by which I mean finals not holidays Mm. so Mm -hmm. dying Mm -hmm. a little bit but some of that is a problem of my own making because (laughs) you know me doing homework on time never been the best of friends (laughs) (laughs) um have you had the chance to do any reading lately i have which is one of the problems probably i shouldn't be reading as much i should Mm. be doing grading you know what I get it. I really do. Like, that's what I wanted to do when I was getting my last degree as well. Like, let me read. I don't want to, like, do the classwork. I don't need to. I mean, you do for the grade and for the piece of paper at the end, but there were books I wanted to read instead. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and then my problem is because I like to read so much, even when I'm working on dissertation stuff, I just, I'm like, well, that article was really neat. Like, let me just go look at their works cited page. Ooh, these 12 articles look really interesting. So I just get mired in reading. I mean, mm-hmm. my my Mendeley citations folder is gigantic, and my dissertation proposal still kind of lacking in words. It's so weird how that <laughs> happens. <laughs> I have not gotten like much YA reading done lately. I have read one book, which I'll talk about on the next extra credit episode, but. Otherwise, I'm on an Audis committee, which I'm not allowed to say which one. It's not YA. And so I've been doing a lot of listening to audiobooks, which is great. I um have found that I can sit down with a puzzle and listen to the audiobooks and like that'll kill four, five, six hours like super easily and has been such a like nice break from sitting at a screen. I did not realize how much I needed offline time until I started trying that out. And now it's like, that is my favorite treat at the end of the day is like plugging in the audiobook I'm listening to and then doing some kind of puzzle. I didn't realize like how valuable doing something with my hands is while I'm listening. So that has been my 
reading life lately. <laughs> I have noticed your Instagram has a lot of puzzles lately, not just bunnies. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah. that's an interesting new hobby of Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always been like a big family hobby. Like the number of puzzles in my family is outrageous, but I never did them because of the cats. And the cats are still an issue. They like to jump on the table. And I'm not talking like, oh, they mess up some pieces. I'm talking like some of them steal pieces. Some of them eat pieces. So it's like, (laughs) unless I'm sitting right there actively like doing the puzzle, it's a whole situation to like get it covered and make sure that it's safe, that pieces don't go wandering. And so for a long time, I didn't bother. But now it's like, because I am sitting down for long stretches of time, it's a little bit different. Yeah, my audiobook time is usually in the car or sometimes like lately I've been making muffins a lot for breakfast. So mm-hmm. that's like an hour of audiobook time. Mm-hmm. And same thing, I play like kind of puzzle games on my phone because I don't yeah. have any actual puzzles. But otherwise, I would just zone out like no matter how good it is, I need like, I don't know, it's like I need to feel something to remember yeah. that like I'm not just zoning out. I don't know. No, it's it's interesting because I I never thought about that before, but my audiobook listening really dropped when I stopped having a commute to work a few years back and it was hard to sort of make time to listen when I didn't know like how to pair things up. And now I've gotten much better because it's like, all right, clean the house, listen to an audiobook. Every morning when I get up and like get ready for the day, I listen to an audiobook and now the like puzzles and I do I have a couple phone games I like too that don't require a whole lot of thinking, but it's like it keeps my hands busy. And for some reason that helps the audiobook like stick better in my brain. Yep. Agree. Yeah. I have the card game set, which I got mm, for Hanukkah I when I was that. like seven and finally had to buy a new deck a couple years ago. <laughs> but oh. I used to I mean, on my best days with a slightly younger brain, I could go through an entire deck in about four minutes, I think was my was my record. And now like, nope. And (laughs) a lot of my stuff is still in a storage unit. So I've been playing set the app, but it's not Mm, it's not the same. It's still awesome. But it's not the preferred method. I do wish I had more things to touch. I guess that's like an official Hey YA recommendation. That's my favorite card game as well. It's so good. Everyone should play set. And like I said, I got it when I was like seven or eight. So you can really, any kid can play it. I bought like a beginner version for my niece when she was younger. And within like half an hour, she was like, nope. And then we turned the board over and had like the regular game because she was just like, (laughs) nah, the kid version, not worth it. Just buy the real deck. Yeah, it's. It's one of those games that like, I almost think kids are better at than adults. And I don't know if it has something to do with kids being more open to what a pattern is versus adults who kind of set in their thinking. But it's a set is a really great logic game and doesn't require a whole lot of pieces. There's not a lot of setup. And you just I feel like it's a really creative way to sort of expand your mind, if you will. It is. And the number of people is really just limited to how many people can see, you know, like when you're sitting Mm -hmm. on the floor or at a table, which is really nice. And it's always hard to explain to people how to play. But then you just see this thing like click over after Mm -hmm. like a few minutes in the game where they're like, oh, and then everyone's on board. Totally. Let's hit our first sponsor. I love that our chit chat was like really not about books, but about listening to audiobooks and set the game. So 
it's good. We've primed everybody to not be prepared for how many books we're about to talk about in this episode. Um, The first one being our sponsor, which is the audiobook edition of Instant Karma by Marissa Meyer. Chronic overachiever Prudence Daniels is always quick to cast judgment on the lazy, rude, and arrogant residents of her coastal town. Her dreams of karmic justice are fulfilled when, after a night out with her friends, she wakes up with the sudden ability to cast instant karma on those around her. Prue giddily makes use of the power, pushing everyone from public vandals to mean gossips. But there is one person on whom her powers constantly backfire, Quint Erickson, her slacker of a lab partner. Quint is annoyingly cute and impressively noble, especially when it comes to his work with the Rescue Center for Local Sea Animals. When Prue resigns herself to working at the rescue center for extra credit, she begins to uncover the truth about baby otters, environmental upheaval, and romantic cross signals, not necessarily in that order. Her newfound karmic insights reveal how thin the line is between virtue and vanity, generosity and greed, love and hate, and fate. Thank you to the audiobook edition of Instant Karma by Marissa Meyer for sponsoring the show. I am so excited about today's episode because we're going to talk about two really interesting topics, topics I think both of us are quite passionate about. Oh, yeah. And to people, you know, who are playing at home, this is the episode topic that we were hinting at when we talked about global books and rural books. And we were like, and then next week, it's going to be so awesome. And that was about 12 years ago in COVID time, but a month ago in linear time. So this is finally the episode that we promised we would record. For sure. So we're going to kick it off with talking about YA nonfiction. If you get the What's Up in YA newsletter, I wrote about YA nonfiction all month last month because November typically is a celebration of nonfiction. But as any reader knows, books are great any time of year. It doesn't matter the month. It's just nice to have that little tie-in sometimes. So something that I think about when it comes to YA nonfiction all the time, and I've said this before, I do not understand why Goodreads Choice Awards does not have a youth nonfiction category. I've asked them before about this, and they said, oh, well, we can't cover everything, which is the most dissatisfying answer I could ever hear, because there's a huge range of books that aren't even being looked at or considered, and hmm, I just... Yeah, they need their own category. It's Right. If they can separate YA into like three categories, they can have a youth nonfiction category. It's not that hard. Agree. So the thing about YA nonfiction is that it's a little bit different than sort of your typical YA categorization. Like YA is typically, not always, 12 and up or 14 and up, but... When it comes to YA nonfiction, it sort of floats in that middle grade area as well. So sometimes you'll see age ranges that are like 8 to 12 or 10 to 14. And then sometimes you see the straight up YA that's 12 and up or 14 and up. And there are so many books that kind of fall in this middle space, which I love because it means YA readers who like younger side stories or like need more youth angled writing but still complex topics will love the books that sort of fall in that 10 to 14. And then middle grade readers who are looking for more advanced reading find great picks there as well. And one more little thing before I let Hannah <laughs> chirp, chirp in here. <laughs> um, I also find it really helpful to think about YA nonfiction in five different categories. And this comes from writer Melissa Stewart. I'll link 
this article in the show notes because it's so good. And I always saw nonfiction as two broad categories, uh, narrative nonfiction and then informational nonfiction. Sometimes they cross over, but Stuart actually says there's five categories. There's browsable nonfiction. So think about things like the DK books, which I don't know, as a young person, I poured over those books. Then there are active nonfiction books. So those are the sorts of books that require some kind of action or activity. So craft books, cookbooks, that kind of thing. There's traditional nonfiction, which is a broad overview of a topic. Those tend to be what I call report books. They pick a topic, they kind of give you a big picture of it, and a lot of young people use them to be uh, primary or secondary sources, depending for whatever paper they're writing. Oh, man, report is a word you you don't hear much in that context <laughs> anymore. I have to write a report. I know. <laughs> then there's the expository nonfiction, and these are narrowly focused books on a singular topic. And Stuart points out that these typically feature a really innovative format, carefully chosen text, strong voice, and rich, engaging language, which Martin Sandler's 1919, which won last year's National Book Award for Young People's Literature, was, I think, a perfect example of the expository nonfiction. And then there's narrative nonfiction, and Vincent and Theo, which came out a couple years ago, is a really great example, uh, as would be sort of any memoir that you might pick up. I hadn't thought about nonfiction as so wide-ranging. Like I said, I, I've always thought about, about it in two categories, and thinking about it in this way has really been helpful. Yeah, no, looking at this, because um, nonfiction week in the, the college class I teach for future teachers is one of my favorite weeks to teach, but I also am like, this could easily be like three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then usually we'll just say, you know, there's informational nonfiction and narrative nonfiction, mm -hmm. which is useful, but it doesn't really get to all of it, especially because I think, you know, I teach children's literature in the classroom. So yes, like teachers for the most part are not going to assign like a craft book as literature, but it's still such an important genre for kids. Mm -hmm. And what else is, is sort of like in the self-help arena. And I feel like we don't see as many books for teens in that area because it's kind of like there's a kid's book or you can just look at the adult mm -hmm. stuff on like, you know, kind of personal economic, personal finance or something. Yeah. So you see fewer of those specifically aimed at teens. But even when they are like that doesn't quite fit, you know, into informational or narrative. So this like five kinds is way better. And I'll probably use this article next semester when I teach again. It's amazing. Like when you've been teaching or working within something to like, have your perspective of it changed. And I feel like this piece really did it for me because I was like, same thing. It's like I'm used to these two categories, but then there's so many other books that are equally important, but they don't fall neatly. And this really gives sort of the language to think about them and to think about, particularly for those who work with teen readers, what kind of nonfiction they really like because they might love just a good craft book. They might love a good self-help book like I know there was just recently a book released for teens about like time management and getting your homework and stuff done oh perfect yeah exactly so it's like that's great nonfiction too but it doesn't fit neatly into either of those categories but the the five types certainly gives more space to more books yeah and it's weird when you think about it too just because I know when I was in a school library I did have trouble with students who like 
you could tell that for them, nonfiction meant boring and fiction meant interesting because mm-hmm. of the way some of our students would reshelve things. And if I couldn't find something, I was like, I know I'm going to find this in fiction because they <laughs> liked this book. And mm-hmm. I was always right. But then when you think about it, like teens do like nonfiction because how many teens, well, I guess when we were teens, how many teens, you know, read magazines? Mm-hmm. And then now how many of them are reading kind of you know, website, web magazines, even if they're not subscribing to as many print ones, because there's fewer out there. Right. But I mean, what is a magazine except using probably all five of those Mm -hmm. types of nonfiction in one issue? Well, and that's what makes them so compelling, right? Is you get little snippets of all kinds of things on a topic. Like you think about a kid who loves video games, they're going to seek out articles on video games. That's nonfiction reading. Exactly. And when you explain it to readers that way, it's like suddenly they realize they like way more kinds of writing than they think they do, in part because I think the way we talk about it can be so limiting, just because our own understanding is not necessarily as broad as it could be. Right, because we're used to writing reports. Mm-hmm. Bingo. <laughs> like, I need to find a book about chameleons because I have to write a report about yep. chameleons. Yep. Or my favorite, you get those. Um, I made a rule that I stopped buying these at the last library I worked at, but they were like point counterpoint books that cost, you know, like <gasps> they're so expensive. <laughs> 70 bucks for like one little book and it's like it presents the documents for and against a certain case that teens use for their reports. And it's like, no, they get better stuff online than the $70, you know, hundred page book that just like barely skims the surface. And those books are out of date so quickly. Right. You right. Know? Yeah, and that's just the nature of, like, by the time they're written and published, a year or two has passed. So some of those things, it's like, okay, uh, that's old news, you know? Right. Like, if you bought, like, a book about marriage equality in 2015 and mm-hmm. for that, and then all of a sudden it was June and Doma was struck down, like, your book is completely out of date and right. you bought it in January. Like Exactly. Let's talk about some 2020 YA nonfiction that we liked, and then we can highlight some forthcoming nonfiction. I know there's one that both you and I were talking about, like in our own show notes that we're both really excited about because we've had the chance to read it. And if you want to go ahead and kick it off, go for it. Sure. So the one we were fighting over. (laughs) Oh, well, that's actually not till 2021. So we'll hold off on that. I, as far as 2020 or backlist books, Mm -hmm. I just started All 13 by Christina Sundtornbutt, which is about the Thai boys soccer team that got stuck in a cave, essentially, in 2018. So it was pretty recently and had to be rescued. I'm not done with it yet, but it is so compelling. I started it last night and was like, I have to go to sleep now, but I don't want to. (laughs) It's really interesting. I mean... First of all, like, I think the only other book I've read about Thailand was her other book, which is a middle grade fantasy Thailand that is inspired by Les Mis. So all of the good things. But otherwise, I mean, I haven't seen books about Thailand before. So I've learned a lot about that. And it's just, it's so neat to see, like, just kids and a coach who is really, you know, who's like, Younger than their parents, but, you know, old enough, older than them that, you know, can be like a real mentor and role model and just, and it's just like a thrilling 
rescue story. I mean, like I can really see it. There's a lot of photos, but of course not, you know, of what was happening at the instant, but you can really see it the way she writes it. So that's All 13 by Christina Sunturnbutt. My first pick is All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. I listened to this one on audio earlier this year and cannot recommend it enough. If you don't do audio, it'll still be great in print. But if you do do audio, I recommend picking this one up in that format. Johnson performs the audio book. And it's a memoir and essay about growing up as a Black queer young adult and figuring out who they are, how they define themselves, and where they fit in in their community. It's this really vulnerable read. And Johnson is extremely open about the challenges of growing up queer in a community that doesn't necessarily accept the person that they are and what it's like living in that space of being queer and Black. This is one that I would pair with Stamped by Jason Reynolds and Ibram Kendi because the two of them are really interesting to listen to. I listen to them almost back to back and where Stamped gives you sort of this roadmap and this history, this is sort of those principles in action. It's a really neat, necessary pairing. And that is All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. My next pick is Say Her Name by Zeta Elliott, and it is illustrated by Love is Wise. I, so it's a book of poems that is inspired by, I mean, too many recent things. <laughs> but, um, you know, we could say Brianna Taylor and Sandra Bland and just, you know, a a list that I can't even name because it's so vast that we live in a world where I can be like, oh, which black person who was killed, you know, extrajudicially are we talking about today? But it's just a lot of poems celebrating black women, but also like remembering them and honoring them and just being angry about things that have happened to them. It's just, it's really, really just, it's impactful. And it's one of those that if you want, you can read it in an hour. Or what I tend to do with poetry is kind of only read like two or three poems a day. And so it'll take me sometimes like six months to get through a book of poems. But it's a nice way to sort of end your day. But yeah, that's my next pick. It's Say Her Name by Zeta Elliott. I've got Almost American Girl by Robin Haw as my next pick. And I wanted to include a second memoir here, not because... The only YA nonfiction is memoir, though I think in recent years, YA memoir has gotten so good. But I wanted to include this one because it's a graphic memoir and a really nice reminder that nonfiction comes in a whole bunch of formats as well. And this one is particularly readable. So it follows Robin, who was born in South Korea and raised by a single mother. The two of them had had this really tight bond when she was young, but it got more challenging as her mother made the surprise announcement that she was going to marry a man in Huntsville, Alabama, and surprise, they would be becoming permanent immigrants in the USA. Robin doesn't speak English and is really, really challenged in her new school with learning and communicating with classmates, and she's really lost that connection to the friend she had back in Korea, as well as the connection that she had with all things comics. She was a huge comics lover and artist. But through her challenges, her mom enrolls her in this comic creation class, and Robin finds herself suddenly able to develop this really powerful friendship and rekindle her love of comics and reading and being holy herself. It 
is packed with gorgeous art, it's a really enveloping story, and it's got some nice humor peppered throughout it. it that is Almost American Girl by Robin Ha. I loved that book. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, it was so great. She's, I don't know, I'm not sounding very articulate right now, but it's so great. <laughs> Cosign. <laughs> <laughs> My next book is also a graphic novel. It came out in 2015, and it was not put out as YA for, my guess would be, some political reasons. Like, I think it was probably safer for the publisher not to call it YA, but it is very YA relevant. It's called um, Not Funny Haha, A Handbook for Something Hard by Leah Hayes. So it is a graphic novel about two women who are pregnant. And it kind of goes like a side by side narrative of two ways you can terminate a pregnancy, either by a pill or by a surgery. So it just goes through both. There's no judgment. There's not even sensationalism. And there's not drama. There's just these are decisions that need to be made. They're not necessarily easy. They obviously have impacts on your life. But neither of them is like a bad choice. Neither one is necessarily better than the other. It depends kind of how you want to experience it. So it's this really great story that I think if you can even call it a story, that is either going to be helpful for people who actually need to make a decision about how to terminate a pregnancy. And also just for me, when I read it, I was just like, this is this is a great way for me, a person who is not pregnant, to just understand what you know friends or strangers are going through. It's not that I ever needed to be convinced that people should have reproductive rights, but it was it was a nice way to kind of just be like, I've never really thought about the details before. And this one is very fair. It's not too clinical, but it's clinical enough that it's not being dramatic. So that's Not Funny Haha by Leah Hayes. My next pick is The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh by Candace Fleming, who might be one of my favorite young uh, adult, middle grade nonfiction writers. She picks these characters through history and gives such a great look at their whole lives. So in this one, it's Charles Lindbergh. And my personal knowledge of Lindbergh, pretty limited, other than knowing he had something to do with flight. And then there was this Lindbergh baby situation. And I was so fascinated with this start to finish because it's a book that certainly covers Lindbergh's story and both the good things that he did and the super questionable and terrible things that he did. But it really is the story of how he became such a celebrity in the American eye and the sort of influence he was able to have in political realms in the 30s and 40s. It captured me start to finish. It just was such a fair look at a very complicated person in history and yet had so many parallels to things that we see today. And, you know, I went in knowing nothing. I walked out feeling like I learned a whole lot and learned a whole lot in a way that made me appreciate Lindbergh's contributions to history, but also think to myself, like, I'm glad I didn't live through that time to know like what he was doing. And also, I would never call him a hero because he did some really terrible things. And I think that that's sort of the beauty of a writer who is able to do good biographies. They show the whole picture of somebody and a reader walks away feeling like they learned a lot, but also 
walks away not feeling like either they hate the person or they love the person, but instead have a better understanding of who they were as well as the historical context in which they lived. And that is The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh by Candace Fleming. It came out earlier this year and I think kind of got lost in the shuffle that is 2020, but it is worth picking up. Yeah, when I heard about it, I was like, "Mm, no thanks, knowing who he was. And then hearing you talk about it, I was like, oh, okay then. Yeah, it's funny because I've had a number of people say that. They're like, oh, and then you read it and it's it's not like laudatory of him at all. You know, (laughs) like the anecdotes she picked to share in there, you're like, wow, I kind of hate that he was this privileged boy. And yet, like, okay, he did these cool things that like really did change history, but also, he was only able to do that because he was this privileged boy. So, right, you know, it's it's just it was very fair. Yeah, like irredeemable as a human, but yeah, some cool bits of his legacy. And I should have guessed it would be good just because Candace Fleming has done. I mean, I've read some of her nonfiction picture books, Honeybee, which also came out this year and I think is getting a lot of Caldecott buzz is amazing. Eric Roman illustrated it. And it's just so good at making it engaging for, I mean, shoot, I learned a lot. And I'm 32. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I read it, you know, to my four and a half year old nephews. And they also learned a lot. Like, and that says something about how accessible it is. So I was like, if she can make something like equally mind blowing for a 32 year old and a four year old, then Mm -hmm. I think I can trust this other (laughs) book. (laughs) So that's my picture book recommendation, too, is read (laughs) Honeybee, The Busy Life of Aphis Mellifera. Surprise. Picture book recommendation. I love it. Do you want to transition to 2021 books that are on your radar? Sure. So I just read a 2021 book (laughs) that um, won't be out until August. But in the meantime, the book I read is called In the Shadow of the Falling Towers. Mm. And it is about 9-11, which is 20 years ago this September. Right? Oof. Yeah, yeah. So it's a graphic novel by Don Brown, who in the meantime, while you wait for this book, he has some other really Mm. good graphic novels about contemporary and historical, both recently historical and long ago historical. There's one about the influenza pandemic, so kind of relevant right now, called Fever Year. He has one about the Syrian refugees of the past few years. So there's a lot to dig into, but this one especially, it was really interesting to read about a thing I had been there for, written for people who weren't alive. So, I mean, even, you know, my memory of it is so local, which is local to nowhere near New York City. So even I learned some stuff. And then it also brought me back to that day. It was four days after my 13th birthday. And I remember being really confused. So I think this book, it's short, but I think it'll be a really good introduction to something that is weirdly historical (laughs) to today's teens. So weird to think that. But yeah, 20 years ago was not like yesterday. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. So my first pick is Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip Hop Generation. This is a young reader edition by Jeff Chang. And I am so excited about this one. I read the adult version of this book a long while back, I think maybe 2013 or so. And I wondered when we might see an updated version of this one geared specifically for young readers, and it's coming January 19th. Here's a little blurb. Hip-hop is one of the most dominant and influential cultures in America, giving new voice to the younger generation. 
It defines a generation's worldview. Exploring hip-hop's beginnings up to the present day, Jeff Chang and Dave Davey D. Cook provide a provocative look at the new world that hip-hop generation has created. And that is Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation. It's the Young Reader Edition by Jeff Chang. Nice. And then the book we both wanted to talk about is called Girlhood, Teens Around the World in Their Own Words. Um, So it's compiled by Masama Ahuja. So it came from a series she did for The Lily, which I think now has been absorbed by The Washington Post. So she just interviewed girls around the world. I think the youngest one in this book is 13. And just asked them about their lives and had them keep journals. And then she, you know, journals that they knew were going to be published. So it's not like she was <laughs> asking them to just give up something they intended to be private. But I really like how it has like a chunk for each girl and she gives context to their country, their lives, does like some Q&A with them just about fun and serious stuff. You know, what movies do you like? What are you worried about? All kinds of things. And then it's just their diary. And, you know, you and I both read the black and white version. But Mm -hmm. when it comes out on February 9th, it'll be in color. And talk about like teens liking magazines. I think this would definitely appeal to teens who like to the type of teen who likes to collect quotes. Mm -hmm. And then the type who likes to read magazines. It's really it's good journalism. And it's just, I mean, you get to meet girls literally all around the world. She hits every continent except Antarctica. And it's just, it's so interesting. And it's one of those things where I think often assuming like a white American audience for books can be problematic. But her assumption based on writing for the Lily is that it's you know, an American audience that means well, but doesn't know a whole lot about the rest of the world, because we are not, we live in a country (laughs) where we don't get trained to care particularly much about the rest Mm -hmm. of the world. So she really does write it in a like, this is a thing you probably don't know about life in this place, but not in this sort of like, you know, National Geographic, like animals way, just like, you probably don't know that this is how the education system works, or, you know, She, like, just so you know, remember that news story you read a few years ago? That was in this country. And so I think it's like a very fair type of journalism that, Mm -hmm. you know, won't make you feel bad for not knowing about every country in the world. (laughs) Agreed. And I love to how wide and varied these girls' lives are. And I'm not just saying, like, from where they live, but she actually was able to talk to a girl who lived in a nomadic family in Mongolia. And she was talking about how like there was no digital communication between them. So being able to communicate with this girl was so different than she was able to communicate with others. And I can't remember which one it was. She said one of the girls in one of the Middle Eastern countries used to text her her diary every day as opposed to like (gasps) longhand it. And she said it was the most pure thing ever that this girl just text her. Um, And I, I believe that was... In the book, um, I was on a panel with her, so she's sharing some of these stories, but I believe that was mentioned in the book as well. And yes, just I loved it. Like, I loved looking at these girls and really seeing the themes that run through their lives are pretty much the same the world over. Right. Everyone is still concerned with their friends and music mm-hmm. and grades. <laughs> like, yep. yep. No matter how rich, how poor. <laughs> like, Yep. <laughs> um, I know we could talk about this forever, do you, but we should probably move on. Um, 
looking at the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm ex- actually going to hit one more really quick, and then we will move on because we could talk about this forever. So yes. my second one I wanted to highlight, or third one maybe, is Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask by Anton Truer, which comes out April 6th. And this is another one of those books that was actually published for adults. This one came out in 2012, but it's getting this gorgeous new package and edition specifically for YA readers. And I encourage you, if you haven't seen the cover yet, to go look it up because alone that is a marvel but I am so excited to visit this when it comes out in April. And here's the blurb. From acclaimed Ojibwe author and professor Anton Truer comes an essential book of questions and answers for Native and non-Native young readers alike, ranging from why is there such a fuss about non-Native people wearing Indian costumes for Halloween, to why is it called traditional Indian fry bread taco, to what's it like for Natives who don't look Native, to why are Indians so often imagined rather than understood and beyond. That is everything you wanted to know about Indians, but we're afraid to ask by Anton Truer out April 6th. Oh, well, now I want some fry bread. <laughs> Good times. Um, so I'm going to hit our next sponsor and then we can get to our exciting topic that we've been teasing for six years. <laughs> so our second sponsor is The Bitter Wine Oath by Hannah West. Every 50 years, 12 men are murdered in a small Texas town. Are the perpetrators the rumored sisterhood of witches? the evil that lurks in the shadows of the woods, or a big coincidence? Can Nat save the boy she loves and end the cycle of violence for good? Witches and spells blend with everyday anxieties in this supernatural murder mystery centering on a powerful group of women who claim their strength. Shay Earnshaw, New York Times bestselling author of The Wicked Deep, said it is a richly woven tale of magic and murder and vengeance. This book kept me up all night. One of the best stories I've read all year. You'll never see the twist ending coming. Read an excerpt at holidayhouse.com slash the bitter wine oath available now wherever books are sold. That's intriguing. <laughs> so our next topic that we could easily spend three hours on is YA in translation. Mm-hmm. Finally, we get to talk about it. I'm going to let you lead on this one because I know you are like, this is one of your big passions. So you have a whole lot to share. Hit it. Yeah, so if I haven't talked about it enough, I'm in a doctoral program right now in my final year, let's hope. And when I came into my doctorate, um, as all grad students, I was like, this is the thing I want to study and no one will change my mind. And then I changed my mind and then I changed it again. But my second idea that I really wanted to look at is international YA and children's literature, and why the F do we not get more of it here in the United States? I kind of know the answer, and it starts with the letter R, and another answer that starts with the letter X, but also (laughs) I wanted to look into it just um, culturally, like what makes publishers and readers want to read books from other places. I know when I interviewed a few people about um, their jobs in publishing and selling rights internationally and buying stuff internationally, a lot of things I heard from multiple people was picture books and fantasy sell better because it is less likely for us to need to like do cultural translations in addition to linguistic. Um, and that's why fairy tale and myth retellings are popular too. So that's definitely part of it. I mean, a picture book, you have to pay a translator less as far as like there are fewer words. And then, yeah, people are afraid that Americans won't want to read just an everyday kid in 
Amsterdam or you know, Lagos or well, in Lagos, they speak English. That's a bad example. But in <laughs> you know, Buenos Aires, whatever it is. And that is the reason, aside from the R word and the X word, that we don't get a lot of international and translated work. And because it's so hard to find the works and find people who are willing to talk to me about it, that is why I set that topic aside for my dissertation. <laughs> but I am forever interested in how and why this doesn't happen more. I always think about the less than 3% problem. So they call it the 3% problem that only 3% of books in the US are translated titles. And that means when you think about YA in translation, like that percentage is basically zero. And yet the books in translation we have are so dang good. And I don't understand why we don't see more. I mean, I understand. I know the words that you're going for here. But (laughs) like in my own brain, these books are so great. I don't understand why we don't see more. And I don't quite understand why it hasn't gotten the same sort of movement behind it in terms of like diversifying the publishing industry, because this is equally important. And I hope that as the industry listens to those who are talking about needing to be more representative of what our nation looks like. We also need to include more voices from those who don't live here, who are from other countries and have these perspectives that are important for readers here to see and to hear and to experience. Yes. And yet it is like pulling teeth to get people Mm -hmm. to buy these books. I will say, just because I know we're going to run out of time, but there are at least two awards that exist, partly because awards celebrate books, but also, I think, as a not very subtle nudge to publishers to Mm -hmm. encourage them to acquire more. Um, So the ALA gives out um, the Batchelder Award, which is for children's and YA. It all goes into one, one group and tends to mostly be picture books because there's more of them. But what I find so interesting is that they give the award to the publisher, not to the author, Mm. illustrator, or translator, which is definitely a jab at like, look, we're telling you you're great. Please do this more. (laughs) Um, And then the other one is from the Global Literature and Libraries Initiative, and they have a translated YA book prize. So that is exciting. And we can link to those because otherwise I'll talk all day. Yeah, for sure. And then that gives people resources to dig deeper than what we can offer, which let's let's start to hit our recommendations. My first one came out earlier this year. It's called Be, Book, and Me by Kim Sagwa, translated by Suni Young, and it's told in vignettes. It's a book written in Korean originally and set in South Korea that follows two teen girls who are outcasts and they become really dependent upon one another. They're both dealing with these really unstable family homes, and they both are dreaming of nothing more than escaping where they're at. But then one of the girls betrays the other, sharing a secret that she promised not to, and their friendship is in absolute shatters. It's a really dark and lonely read, but one that is so memorable and gets to the heart of so much about friendship, about the power of those first really intimate relationships as a young person. And that is Be, Book, and Me by Kim Sagwa, translated by Suni Young. 
Oh, yeah. Also, another tip to people, if you like an international book and want to see more, look up the translator. Because mm-hmm. often people will start with, you know, only one book from an author from elsewhere and see how it goes. But I mean, even just in looking at titles for today's episode, I was like, oh, yes, you're here again. Look at that. <laughs> so yeah, definitely look up translators if you're looking for international stuff, not just authors. My first choice is Here the Whole Time by Vitor Martins, uh, and it's translated by Larissa Elena. It is from Brazil. I also always find it interesting to see how titles are translated. It was called 15 Days in the original Mm. Portuguese. So Felipe gets it. He's fat. Not chubby, not big boned, fat. And he doesn't need anyone to remind him, which is, of course, what everybody does. That's why he's been waiting for this moment ever since the school year began. School break. Finally, he'll be able to spend some time far away from school and the classmates who tease him incessantly. His plans include catching up on his favorite TV shows, finishing his to-be-read pile, and watching YouTube tutorials on skills he'll never actually put into practice. Sounds like quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) But things get a little out of hand when Felipe's mom informs him that Caillou, the neighbor kid from apartment 57, will be spending the next 15 days with them while his parents are on vacation. Felipe is distraught because A, he's had a crush on Caillou since, well, forever, and B, Felipe has a list of body image insecurities and absolutely no idea how he's going to entertain his neighbor for two full weeks. So I just started reading this, and so far I love it. Brazil is one of my favorite not-here places. My dad spent some of his youth there as well, so he has a strong connection to it, and I speak sloppy, lazy Portuguese that (laughs) makes it sound like I'm fluent, when in fact I am definitely not. Um, So I was super excited when I heard about this one, and so far so good. That's Here the Whole Time by Vitor Martins, translated by Larissa Elena. My next pick is one of my all-time favorite books, and I believe it's one you read maybe after you heard about it from me, or... You and I bonded because we were both like the only people who've read this book. And Probably. It's, <laughs> I can't remember which one, but it's uh, called Kiffy, Kiffy Tomorrow by Fiza Gween, translated by Sarah Adams. And let me start by saying this wasn't initially published as YA when it came out in 2014, but it is 100% absolutely a YA book. And it follows 15-year-old Doria, who is growing up in the projects about half an hour from Paris. She has this father who has ditched her and her mother who is illiterate, and he heads back to Morocco in order to attempt marrying a woman who could sire him a son, because that is all that matters to him. And it deals with a lot of issues that are cross-cultural and about the challenges of growing up between cultures, what it means to figure out who you are, and what you do when your world's been completely blown apart. What happens when the people you've come to know and rely on for certain things, always being there, always not being there, start to change and mold into their own lives and new paths too. But what I really, really, really love about this book, and I think really makes it such an outstanding translation, is that Doria's voice is unbelievable. She is one of these girls who is a miracle, but is also not a miracle. And I think that's what made her resonate so much. So she's going through a whole lot. I know saying it doesn't make sense, but She doesn't see herself as anything special, and she is not good at school. She doesn't care about school, but 
it doesn't make her worthless or driftless. Instead, it's very much like she's a 15-year-old girl trying to figure stuff out best she can. And when the school reassigns her to a trade she doesn't care about, she is so real and authentic with how she handles it and staying true to who she is. And that is Kiffy Kiffy Tomorrow by Fiza Queen, translated by Sarah Adams. That is a book I read because of you. Your next book is a book we both randomly read. Yes, there we go. <laughs> remained like the only two people who have read it, apparently, <laughs> except my students, because I made my department buy it, so I could assign it. <laughs> but anyway, my next pick is Aya by Marguerite Abwe and Clément Aubrey. I have not taken French since 2008, so I'm sorry for ruining that. It's translated by Helga Dasher. So it takes place in Ivory Coast when it was still Ivory Coast and not being called Cote d'Ivoire, which I think is a change in our lifetimes. Um, So it's 1978, and it's just about a teen girl's life. So it's one of those kind of like girlhood where, you know, I think people will pick it up and go like, oh, what is this exotic or tragic life in Africa? When actually it's just, you know, her and her friends sneaking out at night and hooking up with boys and being mm-hmm. mad at boys and, you know, kind of having sort of like, you're being a bad friend to me, but a good friend to her. And now you're being a good friend to me. and about So just all of that being a teenager stuff. And Aya is a girl who lives in a working class neighborhood, um, but her father is kind of you know working on getting ahead and takes her to a fancier neighborhood to his boss's house because he wants her to meet the boss's son, because then maybe something will happen there. But she is so not interested in boys. She really wants to be a doctor. So she's like, I care about my friends, and I care about doing well in school. Like, who has time for boys, especially, of course, you know, the boss's son is like, not even that great of a boy. He's kind of annoying. So it's just, it's fun. It's a graphic novel. And it was just a nice kind of adventure to a part of the world I haven't been to and a time that I feel like I don't see as much historical fiction in like the the 70s I think I've read less about than other decades so it is a series I've only read the first one I I think there are four in the series but it might only be two that are available in English but that is Aya by Marguerite Abwe and Clément Aubry. My next pick is I Love, I Hate, I Miss My Sister by Amelie Sarn, translated by Y. Maudette. And this is a short little book, like 150 pages or so, but it's a really powerful gut punch. And I picked this one up and read it almost immediately after I had read Kiffy Kiffy Tomorrow for a different perspective on a very similar community. So it follows sisters, Sohane and Delilah, and they live in a housing project in France. Both are Muslim girls. And the story picks up where we know that Delilah has been killed by a boy who lives in the projects, who thinks that it's his job to police how people look and behave. So then Sohane talks about how this moment came to be, and it's a story about their devotion to one another as sisters, as well as how French laws make wearing a headscarf in the public classroom illegal. If you've been paying attention to anything going on in France, their um, anti-Muslim laws and regulations are still in the news. So this book remains super timely. And one of the catalysts here is is the wearing of the headscarf. And Sohane decides that she's going to wear one as a means of pride in her religious beliefs. This really fascinating story of 
choice of respecting your culture, taking part in your culture, and doing so within the context of a country that doesn't want you to practice what you believe in. And that is I Love, I Hate, I Miss My Sister by Amelie Sarn, translated by Y. Maudette. That book. Ugh, I, yeah, mm. we could talk about it all day, I know, because we have. It's mm-hmm. so good. And it has some of my favorite parents in YA, too. Mm-hmm. And again, it's really short, too, which surprised me, like, how much was packed into this tiny little book. I loved. Yes. I have a real love for, like, short books that can do that. So this one stands out to me. Do we want to hit one more each before we wrap up the show? Sure. On the very opposite end from <laughs> I Love, I Hate, I Miss My Sister is a tome of a book. It is definitely a doorstopper. <laughs> it's The Librarian of Auschwitz by Antonio G. Iturbe, and it is translated by Lilith Thwaites. So it was originally written in Catalan, but takes place in Prague and then, you know, in Auschwitz. So I do think it's interesting just because I feel like of all the translated books Americans are likely to read, it is things that are either Holocaust memoirs or Mm -hmm. Holocaust historical fiction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I did think it was interesting that this is, you know, a Spanish author who's writing about it. So he interviewed um, this woman, Dita Krauss, and so the novel is based on her. She was um, in the Terezin ghetto outside of Prague and then moved to Auschwitz. And because she was only 14, kind of had to find a way to make herself, you know, kind of savable because a lot of children were sent to the ovens first. I say that as a Jew, just to like... (laughs) Just to clarify, when I talk about the Holocaust, it's low-key irreverent in that way where Jews talk about it to each other because we've all read so many novels and memoirs. So I'm not trying to diminish that. But children were often sent off either to be experimented upon or immediately exterminated, as the Nazis would say. So at 14, she really had to find a way to be worthwhile in the eyes of the Nazis. And she did that kind of by being the librarian. Like she just, Terezin is kind of known for having a lot of children and for being a ghetto where the arts were actually really important. And the Nazis allowed them to do lots of like music and theater and reading and, and writing. Um, And so she kind of took that with her to Auschwitz. So yeah, it is it is fascinating. She managed to hide eight books, which may as well be like 8,000 when you think of how hard it was to have possessions there. Um, so it's really interesting. It's another one that wasn't published as YA originally, but um, whoever acquired it in the US made it made the decision to put it out as YA. It's not easy as Holocaust fiction or nonfiction tends to be not easy, but It is a really interesting read. I don't even know if I could say I liked it, but I am glad I read it, if that makes sense. So that's The Librarian of Auschwitz by Antonio G. Turbe. My last book is for your TBR. It comes out, I believe, in March of 2021. It's called The Immortal Boy by Francisco Montaña Ibanez, translated by David Boles. March 9th is the pub date. And here's a little blurb. Two intertwining stories of Bogota. One, a family of five children left to live on their own. 
The other, a girl in an orphanage who will do anything to befriend the mysterious immortal boy. How they weave together will never leave you. It's written in both English and Spanish, which I think is brilliant. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this one. That is The Immortal Boy by Francisco Montaña Ibanez, translated by David Bolas. March 9th is when that one comes out. Whew, oh. We got through a lot. We did, and we each have like six more books in mm-hmm. each category that we would <laughs> gladly talk to anyone about. <laughs> As always, thanks, y'all, for tuning in this week. If you have feedback about the show, you could leave it on Apple Podcasts. That lets us know how we're doing and helps other people find us. Thank you again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible, and thanks to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink, who makes us sound way better than we do when we actually record. You can follow me, Kelly Jensen, on Instagram as Hey Kelly Jensen, and you can follow Hannah where? You can find me on Twitter at SHGMcLicious, on Instagram at SHGMcLicious, or at BookishGirlFit. We'll talk to y'all again in two weeks, and I will talk to you all next week for our extra credit episode. See you all then. Bye.